you've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. What is up, team? I hope you had a nice Christmas and Santa served you well. Welcome to the last episode of 2017. On this episode, I have the great honor of speaking with an original market wizard and returning guest of Chat with Traders, Anthony Saliba. Tony was first on episode 107. On that episode, we mostly discussed Tony's life as a trader and related subjects, including how he made $9 million, give or take, trading options on the floor of the CBOE before turning 30 years of age during the 80s. But one thing we didn't go into too much was Tony's life as a parallel entrepreneur and an investor. So I told Tony, this time around, it's something I'm keen to hear a lot more about because Tony's success extends far beyond trading alone. For example, Liquid Point, an options execution and technology firm which Tony founded, was acquired in 2007 for a sum of mid nine figures. He's also invested in upwards of 100 companies in a whole range of sectors, owns a golf resort, shopping centers, and other real estate. And that's not all. So the underlying theme throughout this episode is not how to become a better trader, but how to build generational wealth. I'm excited to share this episode with you because for me, Tony is a huge inspiration. Continue listening, please take something away from this, and most importantly, implement. I won't say any more. Here's the big boss, Anthony Saliba. Aaron, how are you? <laughs> I'm well, I'm well. How are you? Very good. It's been almost a year. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that. It's like almost exactly one year, like almost to the day that we uh, did the almost first to podcast. The day. Absolutely. I was just telling my partners that. How have you been? <laughs> I've been well. I've been well. I mean, there's been a few changes since we last spoke. I'm actually now working at a prop firm in Sydney. Uh, not as a trader. I'm a, a trader manager here. But uh, yeah, so that's probably the... 
fantastic. Yeah, that's probably the biggest uh, change since we since we last spoke. Um, I've only been here a little while. It's uh, it's only been about a month actually. Uh huh. What do they trade? Uh, all futures, all futures. A lot of stuff on the ASX, but also you know some other markets around the globe too. So, but yeah, most of the volume's done on the ASX. Uh huh. Yeah. How about you? What's been happening? Oh my! <laughs> I've been so busy. Got a uh, we we launched a new company. We're actually waiting for FINRA approval, but uh, we're partners with um, ITG, which is a a large um, publicly traded uh, technology fintech company that is mostly in the equity space, but uh, they had some um, uh, options technology, and we uh, took that on and added our own IP, and now we've uh, got a really slick front end and, you know, mostly professional, but also other buy-side traders, so that's been taking time over the last um, three or four months to get ready for a launch expected January 2nd. And my other project, which I think we talked about a year ago, has been moving along really well. Development on the software has um, proceeded all year. We've got a kick-ass simulator. We've got AI integrated into it, gamification, all about traders. So it's been a busy busy uh, 11 and a half months. <laughs> excellent, excellent. I'm pleased to hear. That's really cool. Uh, is one of those projects you talked about, is that Matrix X? Matrix X is the um, joint venture with um, ITG. And um, it's a professional platform. We could talk about that. But it's basically been um, acquiring that business and adding our um, some of our secret sauce, some algos for uh, options and futures options. Um, we're going to be active in the crypto coin space and, it, you know, we've got, got some, uh, great technology. We, I've been adding a lot of staff. I went from two or three people to 23 people in the last few weeks. Um, wow. <laughs> just, uh, adding a lot of, you know, sales support technologists, here okay. we are. <laughs> <laughs> well, funny enough, that's uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you, actually. I mean, let's address the elephant in the room <laughs> because, you know, someone like yourself who's been in markets for, uh, it's been about 40 years, right? Um, Almost, yeah. What What's your stance on Bitcoin? Like, where? what's your take on this? Well, um, I... You mean in terms of the regulation or in terms of where I think it's going? In Just terms the, of the whole kind of hype around it. Up? Well, I, I think that it's real and I think that it's got a lot of value to absorb. And I say that meaning generally for the genre. I'm not so sure it's all going to go into Bitcoin. There's a, a lot of coins that are... Um, uh, viable. And I think as it relates to an alternative to currency uh, by governments, it has a long way to go before it even, you know, reaches 
um, a meaningful percentage of the float of, of currencies. So standing in its way is um, are things like the deficiency in the coin itself. I mean, of the hacked losses, it hasn't been in the blockchain technology. It's been in the coin and the wallets themselves. So that has to be addressed. But then you have regulation. And just yesterday, the uh, SEC chairman, Jay Clayton, said that he's not so sure they shouldn't be, um, the ICOs shouldn't be done on uh, national exchanges. So that would either send the business offshore totally or make exchanges a lot more valuable. <laughs> How about you? You know, it's it's funny, right? Because I've had a couple uh, guys on the podcast who are actively trading or actively involved in Bitcoin markets. And I remember saying, this was probably only six months ago um, or thereabouts. I was speaking to one of the guys and I was saying, you know, I just bought a bit of Bitcoin when it was around about $3,000, right? And I was like, you know, it's just a speculative bet. You know, I see if I lose a few thousand dollars on it, no big deal. It's not going to change my life. But, you know, the upside is really unknown. And I was like, you know, the, there's a possibility that in a few years time, it might be, you know, $5,000 a coin or, or something like that. And it's just <laughs> gone right past that and, and kept going. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's very hard to say, um, you know, a lot of people are trying to make predictions and, say all sorts of things but i think this is a beast of its own you know i i I think at the end of the day no one really knows what's going to happen because it's just there's nothing else like it right right there's obviously you know speculation that comes and goes but as a store you know house of value it kicks the shit out of uh gold and you know gold costs so much more to produce Gold is unwieldy. Gold is, you can't uh, walk into a store and buy something uh, in times of trouble with gold or anytime. I mean, you can today with Bitcoin. More and more people are taking Bitcoin. I mean, up till recently, only pros could access it. Now, as the common person is able to access it more and more, I think you're going to see a uh, more value come into the space may go may go into ethereum may go into uh you know uh art bite is another one i saw today that part of the funds go into supporting the arts so to speak so there's a lot of twists on that right but it all gets down to the distributed ledger technology so and do you, you think know. there's a there's a chance we might see options on bitcoin <laughs> i sure hope so <laughs> why not right yeah yeah i um <laughs> i thought that's something you might be uh keen on yeah well i mean the reason why we have current um futures is just because the cftc is a lot easier than um you know a lot easier than the sec and that's you know that's why you, you see the futures today but i guess you could have options on the futures they just aren't as heavily traded so yeah i think i think you're gonna have options soon i mean on options options on futures 
which would be totally awesome. <laughs> All right, Tony. Well, last time we spoke, we ended up speaking for around about two hours. Um, I, I need to ask you this time in advance, are you on any time constraints? I, I do. I only have about to the top of the next hour, I have a meeting at, at uh, 2 Central, so I have about an hour and 20 minutes. Okay. Uh, yeah, we'll, um, yeah, we should be wrapped up by then. Yeah, yeah good. No trouble. Good. No trouble. So, Tony, one of the big things I want to talk to you about today, and we only just touched on it last time. So, last time when we spoke, we spoke a lot about your career as a trader, right? But yes. I, and at, right at the end, we spoke a little bit about your life as more of a businessman. Mm-hmm. And I'd love it if we could spend uh, the time we have together now talking a lot more about that, right? Right. So correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think it's in some ways it, it's fair to say, and it may not have been intentional, but being a trader was kind of like a stepping stone for you to to go on to even bigger and better things, right? Correct. It was. It, it gave well. It gave me opportunities based on the money I made, obviously, but also the skills I learned as an options trader uh, and the mindset I delivered uh, uh, developed. Sorry, as an options trader, given the many different directions you can go with an options position, and my. Uh, ability to think outside the box, so to speak, um, that you, you're given the attitude or you develop the attitude that anything is possible because in options, there's always a, a way out as long as you're, you know, you're, you're, uh, thinking properly going into the position. So my trading decades, if you will, um, uh, formulated a mindset. It also gave me a lot more confidence uh, because if you can trade options successfully, you can do, you know, just about anything in finance um, uh, properly or successfully. And then the capital that I earned, obviously, also. I was saying to my kids over the weekend, um, so remember, you know, when I die on my tombstone, you need to make sure it says, Necessity was the mother of invention because everything that I've done since my trading or even in in the middle of my trading years was uh, I saw a problem and developed a solution. And that really, you know, sprung out of necessity. So the um, options trading was a springboard. I'm still very close to it. We still have um, traders that trade for us. We look at things in, in terms of options optionality. Uh, a lot of our deals involve options. So it is in the fabric, so to speak, Aaron. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I remember that quote that's, uh, I even titled uh, our episode, Mother is, uh, Necessity is the Mother of Invention. Is that it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So was there a point where you began to consider yourself more of a businessman rather than a sole trader? Or did it just kind of happen without sort of consciously intending it to happen? There was a a time early in my trading career where I fashioned myself as a businessman, like at the forefront of my mind, and I invested in things like 
restaurants, and I own part of a construction company, and a um, number of you know arm's length investments that didn't all go very well. And then I sort of you know popped out of that mindset of being a businessman and actually rolled up my sleeves to do something and be involved in the business. And I was still, I was still in my late twenties, maybe I was 30 and I, um, I got involved in the clearing. Yeah, it was 29. I got involved in the clearing business, uh, as a, um, clearing house owner and I, I did that for about four years or five years until about four years till the market crashed. And, and uh, you know, my role was in management, but also in, in marketing. And the, um, the partners I had were um, supposed to do the risk management and things didn't go so well in the crash of 87 in that regard. So I, I learned firsthand there was you have to really keep your eye on the register, keep your eye on the risk and be more involved um, hands on. Uh, over the decades, I've invested in hundreds of companies, but most of the really successful ones I was involved with either on the board or, uh, on, you know, hands on uh, management. So that's kind of when I, to answer your question, when I believe I thought of myself as a businessman, where I actually started to be responsible for the hiring and firing and managing of some people. I think that was probably in 88 when I started um, the training company, which uh, we barnstormed around Europe and uh, trained up thousands of uh, mostly young men, but also some women uh, on how to trade options. And those young men and women are running trading desks around the world today. So it was a, you know, an interesting time. It was a way to learn how to um, make a budget, meet a budget, uh, exit a business, and, I, I, you know, literally probably have learned more than I would have in any MBA program, uh, you know, at Wharton or any other um, business school. Right. Now, you said some of those earlier investments, uh, I think you said you had a restaurant at one part or you were invested in a restaurant and a couple other things, uh, and some of those didn't go quite so well. Do you know why they didn't go quite so well? Yes. Well, in the in the restaurant, so I had a number of restaurants. I had at least uh, three different restaurants that I can think of. Um, um, one was a chain, and that didn't go well because um, one of our one of our store managers was stealing from us at one of our main stores. We had thirteen uh, restaurants uh, in various college towns in the Midwest. And um, we also expanded a little bit too much when we went out to uh, Arizona to open a couple of restaurants out there, which 
there was no management oversight. So with the combination of, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars being uh, pilfered by one of our managers over a um, relatively short period of time that went on undetected and the expansion, it was just too much um, for the, the company to uh, withstand. And it was in the early 80s, it was 82 or 83, and interest rates were in the high teens, and we were paying uh, we were paying 17% for um, uh, loans to buy our equipment. So it was just a very uh, top-heavy business, and it folded, and um, uh, you know went bankrupt after about four years of operation. It was just, uh, not, you know, not well thought. Um, my second restaurant that I was involved in was, um, uh, I was partners with, with, uh, the coach, Mike Ditka. And, uh, uh he was, uh, just won the Super Bowl, Chicago bears coach. Everybody in America knows him because he's, you know, pretty recognizable face. And I was the only partner out of 25, <laughs> that wasn't a lawyer. It was like the hottest deal in town. And I had, uh, um, and 1% of the, the transaction and coach had like 10 or 15. And then, um, the lawyers had, you know, the rest. And after we opened, I was able to buy, uh, another couple points. And Aaron, the moment from the moment the doors opened, for the next five years, the place was either one or two, definitely in the top three most uh, active restaurants in the country. We had the most revenues in 1987 of any any um, uh, restaurant in the company in the country, rather, and we all got our money back within. Uh, the first year, we tripled our money within the second year, and it was just going gangbusters until um, the coach decided he wanted a bigger percentage. <laughs> and he had had his heart attack, and he, you know, wanted a bigger piece of the restaurant that bared his name, uh, uh, Ditka's. And he assembled us all one day and uh, – started yelling at us like we were a bunch of recruits <laughs> that, um, you know, his name was everything and he wanted, uh, a larger percentage. And one of the lawyers reminded him that it was a room full of lawyers and we had a contract and, uh, it, it went South from there. It, there was a clause that he could close it down and he closed it down and, uh, opened it outside of the, zone that we controlled and it's um the, a very busy and popular restaurant in uh Maryville, indiana i believe today but we don't own any of it so um it's uh you know sometimes you can't control uh political issues and it was a good run for the four or five years that we were in it i think it was five years um and uh, learned a lot, made a lot of money. It was a good thing. So you take all those lessons along the way and you try to build on them. You know, you 
you make sure you go into, into contracts um, with uh, your eyes wide open. And, you know, I would never have done that to anybody, but I could, you know, I could kind of see his point where he uh, was a big deal. He wasn't making that much as much as he could, but uh, I would never do that to anyone. Yeah. Now, how did you get involved in the restaurant business? Now, I know you're involved in lots of different sectors these days, but you know, in the earlier days, this must have been a big thing because you were an options trader. You traded on the floor for many, many years. You know, you, you didn't have any experience or background in the restaurant business. How did, what gave you the confidence or how did you know what you were doing to be able to branch out into these areas and invest in places where you had no prior experience? Well, that's a good question. I, um, I really tried to look at everything in a risk reward uh, manner and uh, just like I would with an options position, try to limit my downside and have the opportunity to um, have some significant upside. Um, I would say that in the early days, and I, and I literally got started uh, investing in outside businesses when I, I was like, you know, 27 or 28 years old. And when I look back and I know a lot of, you know, 20 somethings today that, um, probably wouldn't begin to know how to invest in other businesses. I I'm surprised that I did that, but a big factor was the character of the individual that, was running the business and, and their, um, work ethic. And even if they didn't have a lot of history, uh, just their character, that was a, a, a big factor. So, um, my, my rush initial restaurant foray was possibly a, um, you know, an offer I couldn't refuse. I, I entered in a restaurant as a, um, uh, a, uh, a lender. I bought some of these, um, you know, kitchen packages where, uh, the funding of which would, um, finance the build out of, you know, professional institutional kitchen. There are hundreds of thousands of dollars and the interest rate, quite frankly, was, you know, quite attractive. It was over 20%. And I had the, the, uh, kitchen equipment as collateral. Now, anybody who's done that before knows that it's like a, you, it's like a car. Once you drive it off a lot, it drops in value by 50% immediately. And then it goes <laughs> down from there and kitchen equipment was even worse. So you had maybe 20%, 20 cents on the dollar, to backstop you. So if you got, you know, three or four years out of it, you'd get to break even. And, um, I was lucky in both fronts where, uh, I did get the four years, maybe five and the salvage value of the, um, uh, equipment was greater than we expected. It was closer to 50%. So even though the restaurants went BK, uh, the investment was above break even and, you know, got lucky there. So 
you start to do the analysis like you're trading, at least I did, it doesn't always fit. And sometimes you walk away from what might be a good deal because you didn't understand it well enough. And that's okay. It's better to not understand a deal and, and not get involved than to get involved in one that you think is going to go well, but you didn't an analyze it properly. That's, um, you know, the correlation or the um, parallels, at least to my trading. And, you know, and I had good good people working with me, good some good confidants that were friends and family. But uh, I always felt, you know, the risk reward was reasonable. I should diversify. And I, I can say that, you know, like I was involved in the construction business. I started a business in 2002 that had I managed it, uh, I had a friend manage it and it went south after about a year, but it was smart home technology. If you think about the smart home technology, I don't know how it is in Australia, but there are, this is one of the biggest growth areas over the last five or 10 years. And we were there early on. We had some early technology and it had a great name. It was called Smart Home Chicago. So like the song Sweet Home Chicago had a nice ring to it. And we had a small team with some of our own technology, but we just, I just didn't have the right uh, manager and uh, got sloppy. And after about a year, uh, started going through the investment um, to the point where I, uh, I lost interest and let that go. But um, smart home technology today, I look at some of the stuff that's out there. We, we had a great, great ideas we just didn't, I, I wasn't involved personally. I, we didn't stick to it enough. And um, and now, you, you know, you look back and you regret it. I think the vision is important, too. I'll tell you one more story that I haven't really told many people about except Uber drivers, Aaron. <laughs> Let's um, hear it. So I invented Uber in 2004. And uh, I... Uh, you know, Liquid Point was rolling along. We were growing, but I was looking for a different use for our software. And I was very frustrated about being able to get a, uh, a cab in my neighborhood uh, at rush hour. The cab companies basically lied to you. They said you'd call up, they'd say the cab's on the way, and no cab. Now, this 2004, we had um, some mobile technology, which was basically a browser-based system uh, over uh, a MiFi, so uh, telephone technology. But it was more than three years before the iPhone was even thought uh, launched. You know, nobody uh, had even heard about this. So we took our trading software, and I came up with this idea that um, if I could make a market in taxi cab routes, okay, that had a fair value and posted 
on our software that was on a laptop in every taxi driver's car, then they could see that I was willing to pay up to get a ride at that time and come to me. So I, I took the idea, we built it out, and uh, I took the idea to the cab companies. And my commercial model was cab companies, this will help organize you. It'll um, give you a higher degree of um, credibility with your riders because you, you could lock in where the cab driver would see that my bid surpassed the fair value and he would hit my bid and lock in and he would know, get my address and I would expect my car. And I went around and they all threw me out, Aaron, because they thought I was cutting into their business. All I was asking for was 10 cents on every ride that was booked, pay for the software and, you know, with millions of rides a month, I'm sure it would have been a great business. But after each of the cab companies told me where to go, because they were either run by, you know, um, fam Middle Eastern or Russian families that weren't going to let us uh, weasel our way into their business. Uh, I I gave up and uh, hired a, a private driver. <laughs> so I had a I had a chauffeur, if you will, from um, December of 2004 until um, December of 2014 when I got on Uber full-time uh, when the system here was working really well in Chicago. So I was a little early for the technology. I had the right solution because, once again, a problem was presenting itself to me every day. And uh, we were reminiscing yesterday with one of my um, technologists. He brought it up. He said, remember when we came up with Uber back in uh, late 03, early 04. I'm like, yeah, believe me, every day I remember. <laughs> um, but, I mean, it, it doesn't mean that it would have you know, been a successful business. There's a lot of hurdles. Maybe the city would have tried to block me like they tried to block Uber for a while. You know, you, you have to have a visionary. You have to have a good manager. You have to have a good backdoor guy to make sure that you um, – stick to your budget. And that's, you know, we've learned a lot over the years. And, and I would say all the businesses that we're involved in today, we have a hand in the management. Yeah. And I mean, I think the, the uh, taxi companies still feel the same way. I think there's still uh, an equal, equal amount of pushback from them <laughs> with regard to oh, Uber. Oh, God. How about it, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of it's funny. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. They started at the beginning, reimagining the bond screener with an intuitive design that helps you zero in on the exact kinds of bonds you're looking for. Then they made it easier to evaluate each investment opportunity with better data in the places you need it most. Finally, they made investing in bonds as straightforward as stocks or any other asset. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds 
podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. I'd like to ask you, Tony, do you think for a trader to make really big money, like life-changing generational wealth, right? Mm-hmm. At some point, they need to do more than just be an individual trader. You know, like let's say they're they're a prop trader, okay? So, you know, they might be trading a fairly sizable account, but for them to really make a lot of money, they need to at some point take the next step, you know? So from being a prop trader or an individual trader of some sort to actually doing it as a business, right? So either hiring other traders or starting a firm of their own or getting involved in other businesses, you know, you've done all those things, but is it possible to make these large sums of money like we're talking about through trading alone? Well, okay. So it's funny you say that. So we've been spending, as I mentioned last year, this other project that I'm working on, I've been working on with uh, some great partners for, I've been involved for almost three years. They've been on it for a little more than a year, longer than me. And uh, it's a an effort to create uh, CPTs, consistently profitable traders, because um you know, the, the data isn't all in one place, but um, by looking around and um, accumulating the fragmented data that does um, and that is available, um, over 90 percent of active traders fail, uh, closer to 5 percent prob- probably are consistently profitable. CPTs, consistently profitable traders. Now, traders that work for a company that have mentors, that have um, a technique and a strategy that, uh, or a set of strategies that work, money management skills, proper tools, they have a higher uh, hit ratio or higher success ratio, um, arguably. Uh, over 75%. So your question is founded on which type of of trader uh, is it? Are you working for somebody and you're more consistently profitable? Or are you amongst the ranks that are inconsistent and, as you said, cannot amass um, 
uh, enough wealth to change the situation from generation to generation and uh, within your um, family. Um, the ability to become consistently profitable and then do it with an ever-increasing amount of capital from friends and family, for instance. We call them the, the great 10,000, 10,000ers. And what they do is they happen to be, be successful that year. They're sitting around the table at Christmas. They say how much they made. And the next thing you know, people are throwing $10,000 at them. Do it for me next year, okay? And some of these men and women actually do that and start to grow their own um, money management business, and they're successful. And those start to break out, and they're running a business, as you mentioned. So it, it isn't impossible. And clearly, depending upon your threshold for risk, um, you know, there's, there's certain services today, you know, active trader services that play on being short premium all the time and they're close to consistently profitable, but you, you know, may have a problem sleeping at night and maybe you're not so lucky all the time and maybe you're giving it back to too great a degree, but becoming consistently profitable and being able to turn that into a business is, um, required in my opinion to be that game-changing life-changing intergenerational wealth and it's also not that hard to do okay i mean i mean it isn't extremely easy but it isn't impossible to do and um there are those who are becoming their own managers even in their own uh realm uh there's a lot of family offices that have sprung up around this and uh, and I think it's an admirable goal. Now, the other thing is supplementing an existing income or or just having a comfortable living that you know you can count on it. You're not spending uh, six or eight hours a day in front of the PC. That's that's also possible too. Okay, so let's say a trader has been doing well. Let's say. I don't really like to put a number on it, but let's just say they've made their first million dollars, okay? Mm -hmm. For someone in that position, where can they go from there? Like, does this open doors to greater opportunities? Um, how could they begin to turn what they're doing into a business, something that has greater scale than what they've been doing previously to to build these, uh, you know, this generational wealth, what we're talking about to that yeah, point? Yeah, absolutely. And even less than that, I mean, it's not a far cry to have a small trading account that you uh, double in the course of a year that would help you attract, you know, family money or um, uh, money from friends. But um, that success, the bigger that success, then I think that opens a lot of doors. Now, clearly, the the aspect is well. You know, if you're doing so well, why would you want to um, share that with me? But that that gets to the aspect of um, being able to um, have a you know have a decent um, 
management agreement with um, you know with your investors. So yeah, that that is the first step. Um, there are um, you know systems and services that are available to um, um, join and be able to um, have the infrastructure available to you to do that. And um, I think that you know more and more. The, the fastest growing area is, is self-directed trading over the last few years. Passive investing, you know, continues to lose um, uh, the luster, more shops, more big hedges closed down. They can't scale. Um, like China, for instance, it's been a lot of um, stories written lately that the passive investing um, business uh, may not take a, a toehold in China because the uh, investors want to do it themselves. And there's enough tools available for them at least to try. I'm not saying they'll all be successful, but it becomes a, you know, a, a greater opportunity for them. I mean, the returns haven't been that great. It's just as easy to buy and hold uh, in this kind of market. So um, doing it yourself has been the... Uh, uh, biggest growth area for a lot of the retail brokers here in the states, and it's a matter of of hanging on to those customers that can be a little bit mobile. Do you think it's a good idea to take on money from family and friends? Like, I'm sure that can also be problematic in some ways, right? Oh yes. Well, that's it, it's very problematic. I mean, I think you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. If <laughs> You're sitting around the dinner table at Christmas time saying, hey, I, you know, took my 50 grand and in part time doubled it this year. You know, one of your brothers is going to be angry if you don't help him out. And if you're not successful, he's going to be even madder at you. So it's a it's a it's a tough one that requires a lot of you know, caveats going into it. But I think that, you know, if handled properly and kind of easily by saying, all right, I'll take half of what you want to give me that way. If um, I'm not successful, you won't be as mad. <laughs> it's just a, uh, a way of maybe mitigating your, your, uh, your problems there. But um, it is tough. It's, it's, uh, yeah. you know, as someone who had family in my successful deals and got brothers that weren't in mad at, I can tell you firsthand that uh, they feel like they were slighted. <laughs> and that that has lingered for years. And it's crazy because if uh, if it was a loser, then, you know, you have to hear about it also. So yeah, it's a tough. Yeah. Like you said, damned if you do, damned if you don't. I think uh, that's a great way to sum it up. As you said earlier, Tony, over the years, you've invested in over a hundred, maybe hundreds of businesses. Mm -hmm. How do you decide what's a good opportunity and what's a distraction? Mm. Wow. That's a great one because I will, the, the few that I just, regaled you with uh, were 
distractions. I mean, the, the Ditkas was a great distraction because, you know, I was a lot younger and single and we were making lots of money. It was a great place to go, but it was, to- it was definitely a distraction nonetheless. The, uh, the, the two or three problem businesses of the early days, uh, the restaurants, smart home, they became um, big sinks and distractions. But then the training company I got into because my investment in technology uh, for my own use um, became much more expensive than the developers uh, had forecasted that uh, it was going to be. So I decided to get my money back. I built a business around it and found there was a big demand. So the distraction for me was that I started another business that I ran, and um, that's how I ended up leaving the floor, okay? Um, uh, If you remember, or you're too young to remember, but you've heard of the uh, little mini crash of 89 when the United Airlines uh, merger or acquisition fell through and the market um, collapsed uh, precipitously, you know, suddenly and precipitously, uh, I was in Germany, the wall was coming down, you know, and I was, uh, we were training, um, German bankers and I had a big position in the SPX on, and I thought I was only going to be gone a week and, uh, all the political stuff, my team stayed. And so it was a distraction. I just said, I, you know, I can't, um, split this up. And so for, for another 14 months or so, it took me almost that long to get out of my positions. (laughs) Um, uh, I was, um, uh, straddling, uh, being a floor trader and running this international business, but there's been other distractions that just didn't have a silver lining, at least with, with a training company, I built a big, big, uh, institution and had a big following and, you know, it's done well. And then even today with, with our simulator, it's you know one of the best you know state-of-the-art simulators in the um, in the world. But preventing a side business or an investment from becoming a distraction is so key, Aaron, because um, it's called a passive investment for a reason, and the best way to prevent that is to keep your investment low enough so that if the worst happens, it's not going to um, raise your um, attention. Uh, I mean, I I got in early, 20 years ago almost, into stand-up MRI. And, you know, it's a um, magnetic resonance uh, um, system where it would, um, uh, the individual who has a uh, claustrophobia phobia uh, or, or problems laying down to get in the CAT scan, you would, you would um, sit upright and, and uh, it was going to be a great business. Well, for the first five or six years, it was just a tremendous distraction because it was being mismanaged. And then um, things righted themselves. A uh, new operator came in and for the last, uh, 10 or so years, um, it, you know, we get 
annual reports, get a dividend or distribution, and it's not a distraction. But during those early tumultuous tumultuous years, it's like, why, why is this even in our lives? It's um, um, well, you know, we invested a little bit more than we probably should have, and you get involved because it's just not small enough to walk away. Um, so if it's a passive investment, that I think is a key uh, issue. But if you're involved, as I am with a number of the, the businesses today, uh, as a director or a manager, then you just need to be able to have good uh, delegates that'll help uh, handle your um, your calendar and be involved with um, uh, the minimum that is uh, uh, required of your essence, meaning that, as I say to my people, do only that which only you can do. So don't stop to vacuum the office when you know somebody's coming in to vacuum the office in an hour. It's a waste of your time. Uh, I'm not saying don't be helpful to your um, fellow um, staffers, but try to focus on your expertise and what would be missed if you don't do that which only you can do. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because this is something I want to ask you. Like, you've achieved a lot, right? And, you know, 40 years or however long it's been, Mm-hmm. Um, since you've been, you know, working, trading, uh, being a parallel entrepreneur, etc. Um, how do you manage your time? Like, how do you, what, what are your secrets to, to being so productive and getting a lot done? <laughs> oh man, depends who you talk to. I don't think my wife's going to be listening to this, but if you ask her, um, not as productive as I could be, but, um, I um, and I also have a partner who disagrees with what I'm about to say in my answer. I I don't sleep as much as uh, most people, so I have a little bit more time in my day. And um, my my partner would say that I'm not um, operating optimally, and that you know I would be more efficient if I got more sleep, and I would take less times on uh, less time on tasks that I do, um, uh, endeavor to accomplish. But, uh, I, you know, I'm a a technology person to the nth degree. I, I, I can do most everything necessary today on, uh, my phone. Um, I, I used to spend lots of hours on, you know, spreadsheets developing the, uh, forecasting and the planning for the businesses that we're doing, but I try to boil everything down to, um, the, um, you know, lowest common denominator, just like I had an options position, giant options position. I would take out all the low risk, um, components, low risk spreads that had uh, definable risk, put them off to the side and focus on the risk as pieces. So, um, with my calendar, I run everything through certain point persons. So I 
nobody could get on my calendar uh, without her um, gatekeeping. Uh, I try to keep my meetings to a half an hour or less, although um, certain occasions, um, yours, for instance, um, other interviews that I might have, or um, this, you know, um, opus of a project that we're working on, we usually have two hour calls. Um, so to keep them tight and then have a really good team around you that uh, you can orchestrate. With Liquid Point, I had a great team. I mean, we had, we sold the company uh, for over 200 million and we only had 43 uh, staff members. Um, the uh, op, you know, optimization, efficiency of the team was really because um, everybody was trained to do multiple roles. So even though you did that, which only you could do, you could also step in if your colleague needed uh, a helping hand while you had some downtime. And we used homegrown systems to do that. So it's a combination of um, delegation, using technology to stay organized, and um, also trying to do that, which only you can do. So I will go into a meeting and, and hear out the, the team and not try to micromanage uh, what they're doing. Um, I guess slightly shifting gears, I feel as though some people probably have the, uh, the idea that to make a lot of money, you need to take big risks. Now, I'd be interested to hear if you feel as though that's uh, true somewhat. And also, what are some of the greatest risks that you've taken to get to where you are now? Hmm. Well, it's not true that you have to risk a lot of money to make a lot of money if, t- if you're willing to take time. But if you're um, looking to make a lot of money trading in a short period of time, yes, you're going to have to increase the size of your uh, positions. Um, I mean, there just hasn't been enough volatility in the market to do it otherwise, unless you have bet properly, if you will, on um, a few names that have, you know, moved up exponentially over the last few years. So that, you know, is something that um, when, when volatility comes back into the market and there's an ability to um, um, leverage differently and place better bets where you can make money in both direction of the market, I think that um, um, that'll be the case. Some of the biggest risks that I've taken, um, did you say that paid off or just in general or that I regret? Just in general, I mean, maybe they've paid off, maybe they, they hurt you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but some of the things, some, some of the greatest risks that you've taken where you were kind of quite vulnerable at some point. Right. Well, those those uh, investments where I didn't play a a role in um, in managing. Uh, I had um, you know I, I had some traders that were very um, low risk and disciplined. And then I had a couple of traders that uh, over the years that um, 
colored outside the lines, um, if so to speak, you know, and in one case, and we're still good friends. And I, you know, I felt bad that he took some additional risks and, um, basically doubled down on, um, on a trade that was whipsawing him. This is maybe about 10 years ago. And he ended up losing, you know, millions, uh, for us or for me. And, uh, you know, I probably should have clamped down on that. It was happening, you know, in real time over the course of, uh, a few months. And that, you know, was a trading risk. I would say in the passive investments, uh, I put a, a fair amount of money in Fisker Automotive. <laughs> and uh, Fisker had a better car than Tesla. Um, all systems look to be uh, go. And if it was not for the Department of Energy canceling uh, a loan that the company needed desperately to build out, it was like a $300 million loan to build out a battery plant in Delaware, uh, we would have the best electric uh, and hybrid cars on the roads today. But um, that didn't happen. Uh, a Chinese investor bought the business for five cents on the dollar a few years ago, and now he's um, rolling out the first. And actually, to add insult to injury, the cars are quite similar. And I believe the Karma, which was our first car, uh, is the name that he's using on his first car. And we own nothing. <laughs> so um, there's, you know, I haven't really risked the, the bet the ranch on anything. And I might be reminded by one of my family members that I've forgotten something. But I, I think that trader about uh, eight or 10 years ago uh, was the worst. And like I said, I feel bad. I'm still friends with him, but you really screwed the pooch. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But I mean, how, how could you have avoided that? Like, is that something you can only look back on in hindsight and say, you know, I should have picked up on that or, you know, were there some red flags leading up to that? No, you're, you're right. It could have been um, avoided. I um, I think what happened, and this is a good point to people, your listeners who go into a partnership, um, you could both be great professionals, know your skills, you know, uh, immensely, and uh, be very proficient at um, executing. But if you don't have clearly defined roles between the two of you, and I hate to say this is kind of what happened, it fell through the cracks. We both got busy, the two partners. I was actually running you know, Liquid Point at the time. And the other partner who was managing other investments just thought I was minding the store, so to speak. And um, before you know it, it... Uh, it started to get out of hand. And instead of sitting down with the trader and deciding we should exit the, uh, the position, 
uh, that's when he, you know, doubled down. So you avoid it by making sure that somebody is, you know, minding the store, whether it's a restaurant or a construction company or um, a trading company, clearly defined roles and regular meetings cannot, you, you know, you cannot diminish the value of getting on the phone or having a face-to-face with other operators, whether it be your partner or your staff, on a regular basis. Uh, very much old school in that regard to have, you know, regular touch points. I'm not saying that um, you have to consume your week with meetings, but I'm also not a guy that goes to the golf course and says, okay, uh, the team at home is going to take care of it. Uh, day in and day out, week in and week out, some, something's going to go wrong unless everything is off your plate and somebody else has been um, made responsible for that and then, um, you know, actually executes his or her role. And so that's if you have a partner, you need to have clearly defined um, functions. And I guess in some ways this kind of goes back to a point you made earlier where you said, you know, you, you almost need to decide whether this is a passive investment or whether this is something that you're actually going to be hands-on with, right? Exactly, yes. Yes, if it's a passive investment, the size of your investment is going to be the place where you dictate first and foremost. And if it's too big for you and it becomes an issue, uh, you better have um, some good assistance or it will distract you. Uh, I hate to say, you know, having legal counsel or um, having, you know, advisors. I've been pretty lucky that my family, you know, our family office, we, we meet every Monday morning. We talk about, you know, key investments and uh, some are status quo. I'm, I'm involved. I'm invested in a, um, uh, a line of uh, facial and hair care products, okay? And uh, I, I was reminded yesterday that I had uh, three times what I thought I had in, in the investment. And um, I was like, oh, well, maybe I should think about it a little bit more. But, uh, I, you know, I, I pinged the uh, CEO. We're, we'll have a meeting at the end of the, at the, end of the month. But um, you review them and, you know, there's plenty of software to do it uh, electronically, but not all investments have real-time data like we do in trading. Yeah. So you do need to meet with the operators and, and talk to them. Yeah. Now, this particular company, is this, uh, is this an early-stage company? And is, is that something you like to do is get in at the early stages, or do you like to wait till a company has a bit of a track that, record, that, if you will? That's, another, that's, a great, that's a really great question, actually, Aaron, because um, I guess I take it for granted that I – should get in on early stages, if you will, actually have met with lots of founders. Um, case in point, one of our companies is a water company, coconut water, sparkling coconut water. And uh, a young man came to me a couple years ago with an idea Um he had been uh, working for some neurosurgeons as a researcher, 
about the uh, effects of the fat in um, coconut oil and how that um, the essence of that or the enzymes in that, I'm not sure exactly of the um, scientific and medical um, phraseology, but these um, neurosurgeons and their researchers had determined that uh, coconut fat prevented um, issues with memory and you know Alzheimer's, dementia, whatever, and they were creating a uh, pill, and they have a very successful um medicine, you know, it's an over-the-counter uh, supplement uh, to help um, prevent uh, Alzheimer's. Well, this young man said, well, and what if I put it in a drink? <laughs> and they said, yeah, whatever, you know, go for it. So he was traveling back and forth to Vietnam, where he had lived in uh, Southeast Asia for a while, made a number of contacts and found a manufacturer that would um, develop the product to his specifications. And he wanted me to be his partner. And he said, hey, you know, just take the company and um, hire me and I'll work for you. And he's a really hard worker. It was his idea. But I don't know how to run a business. He didn't know anything about spreadsheets. He didn't know anything about, you know, making a payroll marketing, paying the government, all the things that go on with a business. And I just didn't have the time. So, you know, I made some suggestions to him and um, uh, put a small amount of money in so that I didn't delude him very much and set him on his way. Well, uh, two years later, we I put in money about a year ago, but two years since that initial contact and conversation, this company today is in Costco, uh, Mariano's, um, Albertsons, um, um, Safeway. Um, Kroger has contracted with them to white label their coconut water for their own brand. They have over 2 million cans in back ordered um, for the first quarter. So this is out of his garage, <laughs> okay? And um, what do I know about water? You know, I don't know anything about distribution, but I helped him with his numbers to begin with. I, I gave him a little bit of advice. My wife helped him uh, design the, the can. Uh, it's a beautiful looking can. And then he found another investor who uh, did know the space, uh, the water space, and now they're off to the races. Um, one of the lo uh, local bottling companies wants to buy them for over $10 million just in one year. And I'm like, it's too early. It's too early. Uh, you guys are going to, you know, you know, grow it a little bit more from here and probably be able to do, you know, four or five times that or maybe even 10. So I guess, you know, a lot of it matters on, you, you're asking about early stage, it was just an idea. And I helped them put a spreadsheet together. I, you know, I'm not taking credit for success at all. You, uh, it's his, it was his idea, his hard work, his partner's um, hard work. But, you know, we 
kept tapping him back into, you know, into direction to go down the right path to make a budget and, um, you know, worry about the numbers. I'm not sure they're out of the woods, but it looks like they are. So early stage is where I've gravitated. Now, you know, we've got real estate, we've got um, some um, mature businesses that we went into, but yeah, it's been mostly startups and um, uh, probably should have um, started an incubator a while ago. (laughs) How do these opportunities come how do you come across these opportunities? Because, you know, they're from all over the place. Like before you were talking about a stand-up MRI machine, here you're talking about a water company, there's a um, hair product company you're involved with. Like how do you come across all these opportunities in different sectors? Well, um, a lot of people approach me on LinkedIn. I've got um, my second-level group – First level groups about twenty thousand. My second level groups about four million people. Um, I get pitched a number of things. I've, I've been trying now that I have Matrix. I'm staying away from um, doing too much uh, of that reading. But with uh, the new project, I'm you know right now we're it's a startup also that's that's sucking up. Uh, some of my time, my management time to get that launched. But uh, it also spawns relationships in related businesses and trying to put pieces of the puzzle together. We're in the process of buying one of the national exchanges right now. It's been in the uh, papers a lot. In fact, there's a story about it today in the uh, Wall Street Journal. And um, uh, this has spawned a nexus with crowdfunding um, uh, companies because we, we're going to do something special with the um, companies that are the products of Regulation CF that um, are funded that way. So they kind of find me, Aaron, but my uh, partner and my nephew, Mike Saliba, he probably you know reviews, I don't know, 20... 20 deals a week where sometimes he doesn't get past the cover page, but sometimes he spends a great deal of time analyzing whether it's a fit to one of our other businesses. And, um, yeah, they, they find me. Um, I definitely think that there's synergies that can be found between companies when you least expect them. Now I don't have any, I don't have a synergy between, the hair care product and the water product, except that I did go to a friend of mine who is um, pretty high up at Procter and Gamble to see if they were interested in either or both, and, and I think they're regretting not being interested in the um, water company. But uh, w- with regard to the securities industry, we have connected the dots on a number of things now that are in our portfolio that have symbiotic. Um, relationships. So I'm not afraid to keep looking at some of these new ideas. Yeah. And I guess that's just what happens, right? When you've been doing this for as long as you have, people start to <laughs> hear about you, know what you can offer, know what you're all about. And, um, you know, things start uh, showing up on your doorstep. You know, um, 
a book that I was in 30 years ago, uh, Market Wizards, which is you know one of a handful of books that I've been involved in. But that book particularly, I said something in the book, so it lives on like your podcast will now, but this, the, the, this was in the day before podcasts. I said something in that book that haunts me still to today. And that is, at the time, I was still building a trading company. I was partnered with a French bank, and we were populating traders over there in Paris and in Germany based on expertise that we instilled uh, in them here in Chicago. And that company became very, very uh, successful. The bank uh, took it and ran with it. Um, Transoptions was the name of it. And it, it trade, I think for about 15 years, they had a very good run in uh, European markets. But that was then. Today, people, young people who find Market Wizards, because it's an interesting book. There's uh, uh, 13 other gentlemen in, uh, uh, highlighted in the book, Paul Tudor Jones, um, you know, famous, much more successful traders uh, than I was. So it's worth reading. But they read my story, Aaron, and they say, oh, are you still looking for traders? <laughs> like, <laughs> no, that was 30 years ago. And those guys might, might, might be looking for traders. But it really is um, uh, funny how they find you. And uh, I'm sure your audience, you know, has ideas. Um, uh, happy to ping me, but um, uh, I'll be blunt and, and short with them. If the ideas are um, uh, not something I'm interested in, I'll, I'll let them know. I pretty much answer everything uh, late at night while you're sleeping. I'm probably on LinkedIn or something. Uh, uh, you know, now, visiting. now, I know we've got to wrap this up in just a moment. I thought we would have wrapped it up ages ago when it <laughs> said earlier, I've only got, you know, just over an hour. But, um, you know, once again, we've, um, we've, we've pushed it to the limit. So there's just one last question I'd, I'd like to ask you, Tony, and all the wealth that you've accumulated in the time that you've been going as an entrepreneur, as a trader, as a businessman, has most of this come in the form of lump sum gains or has this come more in the form of constant income streams? You're one of the best, Aaron. That's another great question because uh, I, I don't think a lot of people think of that, would think of that question. I definitely wouldn't. Now that you mention it, lump sum, I'm, I'm afraid to say. I mean, I was told by one of my uh, staffers, a young millennial recently, said, you know, the only way you can really get wealthy in, in today's um, world is to own equity. And uh, I don't know if that's 100% true, only way, but it is a way. And I've been approached by so many people that want to be on board with, you know, some of the projects. Uh, they want to, they want a piece of equity. So I would say lump sums in that um, you you build, you build, you build, and then you've attained value, and somebody agrees with that value and wants part of it. Uh, I've had streams, of course. Um, 
that have been decent sized. But typically, like I have some partners in real estate. We own a golf course down in the uh, southern part of the state. We have some shopping centers, things like that. And they're old school and they've created streams for me uh, passively, um, passively on my part. So uh, the bigger numbers, though, have been uh, lumps, except when I was on the floor. I mean, I would consider that, you know, I was working hard for that and creating a daily, monthly, you know, annual stream. But since then, it's been in lumps. And that's that's a real it's a really good question. I think I'd like to hear that from others, too, you know. <laughs> So that mostly comes in the form of exits or when someone buys a stake in one of your businesses? Yes, yes. And that's been that's been the case. And uh, it's also a great question because this startup that we have now today in Matrix, we've kind of talked about probably not exiting. You know, we reg- regret some of the exits that we've had um, because over time you could have done better with that company made, you know, continue to, to build it. And the multiple you got then has not, um, you know, justified, you know, hindsight, seller's remorse, however you want to, uh, characterize it. But we've literally said this time, maybe we'll just try to make this into a stream and continue a stream. And I've got young kids, they can step into the breach. <laughs> you can move to Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, once again, absolute pleasure speaking with you. I I really appreciate you taking the time. Like you said earlier, you try to keep most of your meetings for half an hour. So I, I feel truly honored that um, we've uh, almost gone for another what hour and a half here. So yeah, thank you very much for doing this, Tony. Aaron, my pleasure. My pleasure. Anytime. And I, I've gotten a lot of compliments from uh, friends of mine that jumped into here and they become listeners of yours. Um, so that's uh, awesome. That's I love really getting cool. your pop-ups on my machine too and, and picking off a few of those when I get a chance also. Oh, very good. Very good. So if someone does want to kind of follow along with you and see what you're up to, the best place to do that is LinkedIn. Well, they can hit me on LinkedIn or um, if they want to send an email to info, at Matrix X, that's M-A-T-R-I-X-E-X dot com. So that's, um, I read them all. Um, You know, we've been hiring, so there's been a lot of uh, inbound, uh, mostly um, uh, engineers. But uh, yeah, you know, if, if they've, if they're a listener of yours and they have a question they ask, even a trading question, I'll find uh, a way to answer it or one of my guys can answer it. But yeah, info at matrix X like executions, uh, dot com. So, um, cool. I appreciate it. And, uh, let's not make it another year, even though it's great to talk to you around the Christmas time. And, uh, yeah, we might have to make it an annual thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you're in Sydney. I really miss Sydney a lot. I was in Sydney at Christmas time. It was, it was kind of strange cause it was summer, but it was really beautiful and I loved it. 
Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's certainly, it's right in the middle of summer here at Christmas time. But, um, you know, I'm hoping to make it over to Chicago at some point too. So it'd be awesome to to catch up. Uh, well, give me plenty of warning. You're invited and we could, uh, you know, introduce you to other traders and other people in the industry. It wouldn't be uh, a waste of your time, that's for sure. Yeah, that'd be awesome. That'd be really cool. Well, uh, Tony, I know you've got a call in a couple minutes, but, um, yeah, thank you very much for doing this. It was, uh, it was really great. Um, and I hope, um, we'll have a part three sometime soon. <laughs> Sounds great, Aaron. My pleasure. You've reached the end of this episode of chat with traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.